The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. First Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God, to serve tables. And therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And then let's turn... Just read a short passage from 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is the more formal designation of qualifications for deacons in the church, as Timothy chapter 3 first speaks about elders. But then what deacons should be and what they should be like, and their wives as well, who apparently served alongside them. We read, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. These passages are a part of God's own holy word. Scripture says the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Many years ago, I I can't even tell you how long, but I do remember reading about a certain Dallas, Texas Protestant congregation. We won't mention denomination of it. This congregation decided they needed to split. There were two factions so seriously opposed that lawsuits were filed against each other, and it finally came to a judicial panel of arbitration to try to reach some decision. 
especially decision about who would get the property. Well, at the hearing, the controversy was, was very difficult and tangled, and those in charge were trying to get to the root of it, trying to understand, well, what had really started all this in the first place, and that was difficult to determine. But they finally could see that each of the main factions had an elder that was looked to as leader of the faction, and they could see also that the relationship of these two men had really been probably the original friction point. And they zeroed in on that, and finally the subject of a long-forgotten church dinner was raised, and the judges were saying, well, what got you two so opposed? There must have been some doctrine, some important principle of the church that you were finding to be in opposition to one another, and it finally came down to this. One of those men had been served a larger slice of ham than the other, and I do not kid you. Afterward, the losing group that did not maintain the property withdrew and formed another church, and you can imagine the people of Dallas, because this was in the papers long ago, doing just what you did, laughing. What a silly tragedy that people of God would come to such an impasse and fight each other and and ruin the witness of a once large and growing church and bring discredit on the entire gospel of Jesus Christ, essentially over what began, at least, with a slice of ham. Now, I wish I could say to you that that story is so odd uh, that it rarely happens, but I cannot. I count myself very fortunate in decades of ministry to have had not very much firsthand close acquaintance with congregations in conflict. I haven't pastored congregations that have had major clashes or splits or divisions, but I've certainly heard enough about it. I've been in presbyteries, and I've served as I do now on a committee that tries to intervene and work with these things. I think I have some experience from which to say to you that, in my estimate, I would not think I was exaggerating to say that 80% of the time, friction and division that splits churches does not come over legitimate doctrine. It comes over personal issues. Personalities, misunderstandings, arguments that somehow escalate, and if leadership does not come in and intervene and work the kind of solutions that they might bring, you know what can happen, just what happened there in Dallas. Now, Luke doesn't sugarcoat the story of the early church. You know, we tend to idealize the early church. Oh, those, those wonderful Christians, they had the fullness of the Holy Spirit and everything was, they must have just walked a foot off the ground all the time. But we've seen that's not so. They had an Ananias and Sapphira who were dishonest and hypocritical in their ranks. They had uh, opposition from the official religious leaders who wanted to stamp them out and silence their witness. And those things didn't succeed altogether. God's Spirit went on working. People were being converted. Now we would think that by this time, it's well over probably 10,000 people who may be following Christ right there in Jerusalem. And Satan's attacks through 
hypocrisy and dishonesty or opposition had not succeeded. So now you could say the enemy tries another tack, which in our day has proven to be one of his most successful, the tactic of simple division from within, distraction from the primary message of the gospel. Let's get these apostles concentrating on administrative problems and on stopping quarrels and bickering, and they won't have time to be out there preaching Christ and ministering the powerful work that God wanted to do through them. And let me tell you, as any Christian work expands and even expands rapidly, this is a real demand, and it's a very real thing. I can tell you across the life of this church over the last couple of decades, as we have grown, we have had to keep on changing and adapting. Different structures have had to change. Some things that volunteers used to do entirely, now staff members do. But yet we're not going to have staff members take over everything. We still want our volunteers to be engaged. How do we structure committees? How do we address problems? And, you know, what was right for 1975 or 1995 isn't necessarily right for today, for 2012. And we have to adapt and we have to wisely manage these things, growing pains, if you will, of any live church. And what went on here in Acts 6 plainly does apply to churches today. It It describes the kind of wise work I see happening in session meetings and deacon meetings and church staff discussions. The bottom line is this, the same bottom line that the apostles faced. Will we realize what the main thing is, namely the gospel of Christ in his death and resurrection and his free grace to save those who trust in him? Will that be the main thing? Or will we let subsidiary issues move in and become the main thing? Because they will be glad to do it if we would allow it. I think our greatest threat in any church today, not that it's necessarily greater here at our church than any other, but the greatest church threat that is faced to divide us and harm us are the little things that are managed badly. The arguments that are allowed to go on, the the times when leaders don't respond, they look at a problem and say, well, maybe if we ignore that, it'll just go away. And it doesn't. Churches need good order. They need wisdom. They need the guidance of God by prayer to have a ministry not only of the Word and of the Gospel, but have that ministry be supported by all the other subsidiary ministries that don't necessarily involve words. I'll call them ministries beyond words where volunteers, where gifted people are working, serving, supporting, encouraging, guiding, and building up the body of Christ. So today, first of all, I want you to observe this, that internal management can be a prime disruptor of fruitful ministry. Ministry has to be managed, led, organized. The problem here in Acts 6 was at least an alleged inequity in food distribution. Whether the inequity was real or not, we cannot say. But one group said, at least, our group is not being treated the same. We're not getting the same rations for our widows of that which was supplied from the money brought and given to the apostles by many people. We read about that 
in an earlier chapter. And it was these widows in particular that were the focus of the issue. Now, widowhood is a problem, not just an individual problem. If you are a widow, it is a great, huge problem if you are a widow. Your whole life is set off course if you are a widower, widower. You've lost the person who helped you sustain and support life and economy and all the things that just made days normal and bearable, and you face life alone. But widows in biblical times had it far worse, I would say, than many widows at least today who at least have perhaps a reasonable economic base or social safety nets and things to help them. As we know, widows in in older times did not have uh, jobs available for them to just go out in the economy and say, all right, I don't have my husband as a wage earner. I'll go get a job. That was unthinkable in biblical times. You would go with your son. You would go with your brother or some relative, someone who might help and support you, give you shelter. Otherwise, you probably had a very big problem. And this was recognized from Old Testament into New Uh, Just quickly, in the Old Testament, the Lord, uh, in numerous occasions, declared himself to be the father of the widow and the orphan. Deuteronomy 10.18 is a typical one that says, the Lord executes justice for the fatherless and for the widow. And the responsibility was put upon the people of God, the nation of Israel, and later the church, to say, look, If you want to do God's work, some of his work is helping those who can least help themselves. That should be obvious. James, who, of course, emphasized actions so much uh, in in the Christian life, said in James 1.27, this well-known statement, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And not just visit them and say, oh, hello, how are you? You know, visit means help, assist, come alongside, share their burden. And there were many other things we could go into where people of God were enjoined in Old Testament and new alike to support those who had these kinds of needs. 1 Timothy 5 has Paul writing to Timothy about wise administration relating to the care of widows, and it mentions the lists that were maintained. Lists of widows, actual individuals, who Paul says had to be qualified. And he advised Timothy, don't, don't put people on the list who are just there for frivolous reasons or who ought to be, you know, if they're young widows and, and ought to be married and they're just trying to find an easy way to get, uh, you know, welfare in so many words from the church. Paul said, no, they need to be challenged that there's another way for them to be supported. But The point was for charity to be wise and compassionate. Now, there was a particular problem that we see here in Acts 6, and it was a natural problem of of culture and ethnicity. The widows came from two different major groups, and they're described in the text of the English Standard Version as the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Hellenists, of course, refers to those with a Greek background. And here's the situation, if I just spell it out for you a little bit. The, the Hebrews were the Jerusalem Jewish-born people who had lived there probably all their lives. They, they were Jews. They spoke Aramaic as their native language. 
Hebrew, by the way, was a more formal language, not the, the everyday language. But these folks had always lived in Jerusalem. They figured, this is our turf. We belong here. Hellenists were the widows of people probably born somewhere out in the provinces or maybe in far-flung countries who, as observant Jews, had come to Jerusalem. And maybe these women had been widowed. Somehow their husbands had died while they were there, perhaps on a pilgrimage, or they were just living there because of a business or something. They were the minority. They mostly spoke Greek. They might have known Aramaic, but their native language was Greek. So you can understand, even though they were both Jewish-born, and now they were united by a common faith in Christ, nevertheless, there was a language and a cultural division. You can see how our sinful selves would exploit that. And so the the representatives of the Hellenistic Greek-speaking widows came and said, look, As the resources that the disciples have, as the food that is being bought is being distributed, our women aren't getting their fair share. Whether it was true or not, who can say? The point was, the complaint was made. Now, Acts 6.1 reports it as a complaint in the English Standard Version. A complaint arose by the Hellenists. I like some of the other translations just at least for the the sort of visceral uh, language that it calls it murmuring. There was murmur, murmuring is one of those words that sounds like what it is, right? Uh, we, what do we call those? Homophones, I think, in English. The Greek word for murmuring is an interesting one itself. The word is gogismos. Cool word, gogismos. You just learned something this morning. And here's a word that to me sounds like the quacking of a flock of ducks flying overhead, you know? It means empty speech. Repeating complaints, gossiping. Now, I want to remind you, if you think murmuring isn't such a big deal, where murmuring really was a big deal already in the Bible, and you might think of it if you're a good student of the Old Testament. Almost the whole book of Exodus. Remember Israel departing out with Moses? They murmured all the way along. They faced Egyptian chariots coming. Oh, what are we going to do now? They, they faced a shortage of water. Oh, no, what are we going to do now? They ran out of food. Oh, I hate this manna stuff that falls from the sky. It may be nutritious. It may be miraculous, provided by God every day, but it's boring. And they murmured and murmured. And mur- you think that the Israelites with Moses went to bed at night murmuring and woke up in the morning murmuring, and they murmured in their sleep as well. They weren't happy with anything. They gossiped against their leaders And they sowed dissension. And you know that story, at least in some ways. Well, that was now happening in the church. As long as you could get a hold of a juicy tidbit. Did you know that the Greek widows are not being treated fairly? Did you hear that? And suddenly it spreads. And unhappiness and accusations spread. Let me tell you, folks, I'm not speaking about this congregation. I'm speaking in a broad generality when I say that out of control, Christian tongues have certainly done more collective harm in the last 20 centuries to the existence and the witness of the church than has any fearful opposition by people being burned at the stake or communists closing down churches and arresting pastors or anything like that. It's the little stuff that goes on within the church 
against leadership, against the work of the church that begins to splinter and begins to create what we call schism. Now, on one hand, you know, strange as it is to say, it, perhaps it should comfort us to know that this church, the early church of the first century that we so idealize and think was perfect, had this problem. Thank goodness. They were not perfect. They were just like us. They were still sinful people in their behavior towards one another. The same fractious attitudes and things went on then as do now, something as little as a slice of ham, maybe. Well, the antidote to this problem is the same as it was as well. The antidote, instead of talking about someone, is to talk to someone. We're constantly urging Christians to go and read Matthew 18 that advises you, if you have something against a brother, to talk to the brother face-to-face, see what you can work out. If that doesn't help, Come and get a Christian leader to be involved and see if it can be solved. Well, that's what happens here. Wise leadership got involved, and the apostles said, we have to deal with this. But we're not going to be the ones that will carry out the solution. Tremendous wisdom was shown here as they delegated the responsibility into capable hands. They didn't even pick out the ones who would do it. They said to apparently a wider gathering, we're told here, of, of the people. Uh, let's see. Uh, they summoned the full number of the disciples. How many was that? I don't know what kind of a meeting they had, but, but way beyond 12 of them. And they said, you pick out some who are wise and godly and full of the Holy Spirit whom you think can solve this. And then when they were presented the apostles prayed over them and commissioned them to do it. Now, this is a a master stroke of church leadership, if you don't see it. They were trusting and delegating that people could do this important work, but it didn't have to be them. And in no sense whatsoever do I see the Peter and the other apostles saying, why, that's, you know, they weren't despising this work. They weren't saying, oh, that's just table waiting. That's beneath us. We're too dignified. That's not what they were saying. They were simply saying that's essential work, but it's not our work. It's someone else's work to do for the honor and glory of God. Master stroke, delegation in church leadership. Not one grasping, tyrannical, controlling leader, whether he's the pastor or head elder or or who having to micro-control everything that's going on. I find it interesting in this church. I'll have some of you come up to me at different times, and you'll say, Pastor, how's Mrs. Smith doing in the hospital? Or, Pastor, what's happening in this aspect of the English as second language ministry? And in both cases, I'll have to say, I can't, I'm not the one to answer your question. I don't do most of the hospital visitation in this congregation. I couldn't possibly do that and do everything else. So I know that somebody knows how Mrs. Smith is doing, but it's not necessarily me. Somebody knows how the English as second language ministry is being administered and worked out, but it's not necessarily me. And while I might have a big grasp of things, I don't always have the details. That's great. Glory to God. I'm thankful for the things I don't know. Your ignorance is bliss sometimes, you know. It's wonderful to see a ministry that can delegate and trust itself to other people. 
So secondly, I would have you say, see here that we observe in Acts 6 the foundations for diaconal ministry. Now, some of you would be surprised to be told that the word deacon is not used in Acts 6. While the men were called to do what deacons basically do, and later on will be formulated as an office called deacons, and I read for you the sort of later development of 1 Timothy 3, which distinguished the more exacting tasks of a deacon, these guys aren't yet called deacons. The word isn't in here. But yet they were doing what deacons do. And we describe any ministry that is to serve the congregation, to meet the needs of members, to deal with the practical role of things, you know, helping people who can't help themselves, handling finances, these kinds of things we call diaconal ministry. And later on, of course, we, we have the formal distinction. First Timothy 3 solidifies it, the, the, the difference between elders who have the teaching of the word office and the office of oversight of the whole church and its, and its spiritual life, and the deacons that have a more practical ministry. Now, here's something you probably wouldn't see. I remember when I first learned this, how it, it just made me smile and, and, and kind of beam with how wise the apostles were. The fact that six of the seven men who were chosen and brought to them to be blessed to do this work are men with Greek names. What's the big deal about that? Because there were people with Hebrew names. Peter, of course, was was a more Hebrew background person and so on. But the names given here are mostly those of Greek names that would tell us they were people probably more in sympathy and originating from the Hellenistic party. Now, which party raised this problem and complaint in the first place? The Hellenistic party. Do you see what's, what's going on here? Instead of saying, now look, you Hellenists are only 25%, and we Hebrews are 75%, so we're going to have 75% Hebrew uh, deacons and 25% Hellenistic deacons. No, they didn't say anything like that. The men who came forward were the men who had raised the difficulty. They might have even been some of the very men who spoke up. Do you see the trust that is here in the body of Christ? As the apostle said, here are our brothers. They're gifted. They're wise. They would have abilities to do this. We will trust them to carry out this ministry. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, several of you have asked me, you know my interest in history, I've been asked even this morning, have I seen the Lincoln movie yet? Answer, no. I hope too soon. But uh, I do know the book that that movie's based on. It's a wonderful book. And it's a book not just about government, but about leadership. It's called A Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin. Describes some of the mystery and mystique of Lincoln's leadership how he brought into his cabinet the men he had to trust the most and work with the most closely three of the men who most bitterly wanted to be the Republican nominees for president and who, more, a couple of them, openly resented this yokel from the backwoods of Illinois who had gotten the presidency. Lincoln brought the complainers into his cabinet And it's a wonderful story to see how this man, who was strong in his own thinking, managed to create a government out of his opposition, so to speak. 
That's a lot of what's happening right here. They brought in the folks who represented the problem and said, you help us. We're sure you can do it. We trust you to do it. Now, you see, I believe the work of diaconal ministry of all kinds here is being treated as real ministry. We have something very wrong in what we still do today, and we say, the ministry, that certain of us do the ministry and the rest of you don't. Stephen Light is here today, and he's, you would say he was ordained to the ministry. He's a teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church in America. Well, that is right. He, that is true. But I see him sitting back there, and all around him are people who are in the ministry, the ministry of the church. I don't particularly like it when people call me a minister if by saying that they mean I'm somehow different from them by that designation because it isn't true. I'm a pastor. That's a better thing to designate if you must, and and you're not a pastor, but you're a minister. You do ministry in the body of Jesus Christ. Here are folks here who do ministry among our refugees. There are people here who do ministry in English as a second language or do ministry on a certain Saturday night of the month as they make a meal and take it to the Christmas Addicts Center. Our deacons do ministry as they conduct you into the sanctuary and make this place comfortable for you and make sure it's secured at the end of the day and all the things that they do serve on a property committee to maintain the building. We had some folks, let me tell you, this might be the farthest you would ever think removed from ministry. We had to undergo a major project, as many of you know, to change our sewer connection earlier this year. It was something that couldn't be done at the time the building was built just because of other issues with the town. And now we had to do it to make the sewage for a large building go where it was supposed to go. All right? And let me tell you, that was ministry. Because if that hadn't happened, everything else about ministry wouldn't happen in this building. And we had some very gifted men who had knowledge of of plumbing and civil engineering and these things, and they united. They gave themselves selflessly many, many hours into the night working on that project and brought something that you didn't even notice because your comfort and, and what the sewer serves to do kept on working the whole time. But that was supportive ministry, diaconal service of the work of Christ, just as is the service done by our deaconesses, our nursery workers, our classroom helpers, our secretaries, our ushers, our property maintenance people, our choir members, our pianists, our treasurers, librarians, cooks. You go on and on and on, classroom helpers. Much of the ministry is not standing up and declaring the word. It's supporting and serving in diaconal ministry, but it is true ministry, and it needs to be done by people who are gifted and called and committed. Now, thirdly, I close with this and say that ministry performed in this manner, this diaconal manner that often goes beyond words. In other words, doesn't require speaking. Ministry beyond words actually serves to validate all the ministry that is done with words. Word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, even a great number of priests becoming obedient to the faith. I want you to hear that. He's saying, because the former thing happened here, because 
Beyond Word's ministry was effectually established, the ministry of the Word ran forward in greater success than ever before. In fact, it it penetrated places where it hadn't been able to go before. Priests. Now, these, you know, these are the last guys you would ever thought would profess Christ. Priests in the temple were becoming Christians. Do you see that? The gospel was liberated because the whole body of the church began doing ministry in a totally supportive way. I'm going to offer you a, an illustration of this, and it's very down-to-earth. You know, I've been with you here 18 years now, attending two Sunday morning services, usually Sunday night, almost every week. I'm here a lot. And I have never yet volunteered even one hour to serve in our nursery or to be the one teaching or helping in the 11 o'clock children's worship hour. Is that a terrible dereliction of my duty? I'll actually be honest with you. There are times when I feel guilty about that because those are ministries that need gifted people always. And I'm thinking, well, gee, I could just take the month of January and and go do the children's worship program. Why not? And then if Pastor Light was preaching in my place and he would say, sorry, Pastor Rogers won't be around this month, he's in children's worship. Some of you would say, what? What's he doing there? You know, we pay him the big bucks. He's not supposed to be going there with the children. He's supposed to be here. And I would say, well, you're probably right. I am supposed to be here, and that's why I haven't been in the nursery. But if you would say that about me, do you also say, well, he shouldn't be there because I should be there. Now, you'll think this is a cleverly disguised nursery recruitment advertisement, and if you take it that way, so be it. But I am making a point. I probably don't belong there. When I retire someday, I'll come back and work in the nursery, I promise. But do you see, ministry of the word and prayer runs forward in its greatest effectiveness when it is propelled by, supported by, the undergirding of the ministry that is beyond words. If you want to think of it as a space launch, you and your ministry beyond words are the booster rocket that puts the communication satellite in orbit so it can send its message. Folks, I want to to say a very sincere word of thanks to you. I stand back and I marvel. You know, this isn't a pound-the-pulpit sermon to make you feel guilty for not serving. This is a sermon that says, Thank you for giving me the privilege of being pastor to a church where I see this thing that was happening in Acts 6 operating as it should operate in a very healthy way. It's often said today in churches that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And I've told people many times, that may be true, but it isn't in our church. I believe more than half of our people, all, at least that many, have some very significant involvement in a serving, supporting, extending themselves ministry within the body of Christ. My challenge to you is this. If Christ dwells within you by faith, if his spirit is in you, then imitate him. In the way that he showed us in Philippians 2.7, making himself nothing, 
taking on him the form of a servant. You probably won't be invited here to give the sermon unless God has perhaps so gifted you, and Stephen Light's going to do that tonight because God has given him that kind of a gift. But you can find a ministry that includes action that puts flesh on your words of profession of faith. If you want to be great in the sight of God, serve his people. Serve his people. Serve the gospel of Christ being communicated to this generation. And when you really have to, use words. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your body. How I praise you for this healthy church. We're not a perfect church. We fall down. We have our slices of ham problems. We speak sharply sometimes to one another. We have little tiffs. But thank you, Lord, for a healthy church. I pray that we would be a church that can talk to one another in words of truth and forgiveness and mercy. And I pray we would always be a church where people would find the joy of being a functioning part of your body here on earth. Thank you for the example of trust and delegation in the early church. Lead us in that. Help our elders to be wise in that. We pray your blessing on your church here and now. In Jesus' name, amen.